The other day when I was driving in the car, I was listening to the radio, and I was listening to this station that I listen to sometimes that plays a variety of different music. Um, I listen to it because it, it helps me discover new music and uh, new artists, and most of what I hear on that station is just okay, and I just, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other, and some of it I really don't like, um, and so I think, why am I doing this? But some of it, occasionally, I, I really I find a song I really like, and I've discovered music and artists that I would never have heard about in any other way. So anyway, the other day I was listening to the station and uh, a, a particular song came on that I thought, oh, this is interesting, I like this. The music was catchy, it, it kind of held my interest. And so I listened a little bit more closely. And as I listened to the lyrics, I was stunned by how, how dark and how despairing the lyrics of this song work because the music had drawn me in and I thought, uh, what's going on here? But here's some of the lyrics of this song. I'll never break away, can't break free. Because when I'm alone, I'm lost in these memories. Living behind my own illusions, lost all my dignity, living inside my own confusion, I will always be afraid. I will never break away. I try to keep this pain inside, but I will never be all right. I'm lost. I try to keep this pain inside, but I will never be all right. I was just stunned by those lyrics. I thought, there is, this is just such a, like a clear declaration of despair, as clear as, as I'm, I've heard recently. And it struck me because, it made me very sad because it's really the complete opposite of what the gospel offers to us. The hope that the gospel offers to us that we would, we would not need to say, I will never be all right. I will never be able to escape this. We don't have to be stuck in despair because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the hope they give us, the hope that they give us, what they teach us about how relentlessly and how patiently and how graciously God loves us. And I think what made me sad was to realize that this writer seemed to have no awareness of that at all. To seem to have no awareness of the power of God to rescue and redeem and transform us. And I realized in the context of this sermon series that we're in, I realized that this, was, this, was, this song was an expression of spiritual death, an expression of what it means to be so far from God that you were without hope. Ephesians 4.18, as Pastor Josh uh, highlighted last week, describes spiritual death as being darkened in our understanding and being separated from the life of God being separated from the life of God. You know, if it's true that we were made for, that we were designed for intimate relationship with God, then it, it, it follows that the further we are away from that, the more dead we're going to be. The, the more we're gonna feel like we can't breathe eventually. And then we write a song that has lyrics that say, I will always be afraid. I will never be all right. So as you've heard, we're in this series this week, <clears throat> these weeks <clears throat> from the book of Ephesians called Dead or Alive. And we called it that because the book of Ephesians is about how we come to new life in Christ. Paul says that we were once dead. In other words, we were once far from God. But now we've been made alive in Christ. We are alive to Christ and we are so close to God that we're called his children in fact, we're so close to God that God comes to live within us. God himself comes to live within us. You can't get much closer to someone than that. We're also joined to his people. We're part of this new and living community of God's people. <clears throat> 
One commentator I read said that a good summary of the book of Ephesians is God's plan was to bring you together to change the world. God's plan was to bring you together to change the world. In one sentence, that's what the book of Ephesians is about or what it says. God's goal is to, he also said, went on to say, God's goal is to fill everything with Christ. God's goal is to fill you with Christ. God's goal is to fill me with Christ. God's goal is to fill us together with Christ. And beyond that, as we were singing this morning, God's goal is to fill the entire world, the entire created world with Christ. So chapter one of the book of Ephesians is mostly about how amazing God is, about how powerful God is, how exalted God is, and how he loves us beyond anything that we, uh, in our wildest imagination. Chapter one then goes on to flow into two and three, which tell us about who we are in Christ, who we are in Christ because of what God has done. And those chapters, those first three chapters are written largely in the, the verb tense called the indicative The indicative tense is mostly the present tense. It just tells us how things are right now. So it's about the reality of who we are in Christ. There are only two commands in those first three chapters. One of them is to remember. Not a very difficult command, to just remember. But then chapters four, five, and six shift, shift the gears. Those three chapters are written more in the imperative, the grammatical tense, the verb tense that's about action, instruction, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And there are over 60 commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So last week, Pastor Josh shifted our attention to chapter 4, focused on living the new life, our call to live the new life. And in chapter 4, the key verses, 22 through 25, say, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, you were taught three things. You were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And you were taught to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then verse 25 begins, therefore, therefore. So because you have put off your old self, because you're being made new in the attitude of your minds, because you're putting on the new self, therefore, he's got lots of instructions for what that looks like, lots of descriptions. But he says, most of all, don't allow yourself to be drawn back into spiritual death. You've been made alive to to Christ, so don't allow yourself to be drawn back into spiritual death. Live out this whole new way of life. Let the life of Christ flow through you. So in chapter four, he says specifically a couple of things that means. He says there should be, you should be, no longer be lying. There's no place for lying or stealing among you if you're alive in Christ. There's no place for being controlled by your anger. No place for bad language or for bitterness. Instead, as someone who's alive in Christ, tell the truth. Don't lie, tell the truth. Use your hands to do good, don't steal. Resolve your disputes and use your words, use your words to encourage and build up. Be kind to each other, he says. Be tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So that's briefly where we've been. Today we turn our attention to chapter five of the book of Ephesians, where Paul continues with, to to talk about what it means to be alive in Christ. And he starts chapter five with verses one and two, where he says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, there we are, 
children of God, close to God. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. What he's been talking about, this putting on of the new self, he's now calling walking in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so in chapter five, he goes on to say, tell us more about what this looks like. He says in chapter five, there's no place, if you are alive in Christ, there's no place in your life for sexual immorality, no place for greed, no place for coarse jokes or for drunkenness. Instead, he says, honor God with your body, honor God with your mouth, and be filled with the spirit instead of being filled with wine. So all of that is background to the passage that Natalie and I read through just a moment ago for you. All of that, what I've just given you, is, is the context in which Paul then shifts his attention to our households and how we ought to live within our households. <clears throat> the context for this passage is putting on the new self, following Jesus' example of walking out the way of love or walking in the way of love and of giving himself up for us. And so in verse 20, 21, he says, submit yourselves Oh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, demonstrate your reverence for Christ by living a life of surrender, a life of submission, a life of selfless love, of consideration for other people. If you were here several weeks ago, uh, you, this might sound like an echo of that sermon. The, we were in a sermon series called At the Core, and the last one in that series, the sixth one, was about um, the... the the key idea that we had in that sermon we said was one of the, one of the six core ideas for the Anabaptist faith uh, tradition is we surrender our lives in love like Jesus did. Paul's echoing that again here in Ephesians 5 <clears throat> where he says, remember our example for how to live this out, our model is Jesus. Back to verses one and two. Follow God's example in Christ Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In other words, we follow his example. We do this just as Christ did, loving us and giving himself up for us as a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice to God. One of the things that I think is worth mentioning or highlighting is that when we ever, whenever we talk about Jesus as our example, we're always looking at a bit of a paradox, especially on this topic. Because on the one hand, the first thing we said in our At the Core series, the first sermon in that series was our first uh, and overarching theme, which is that Jesus is Lord over absolutely everything, right? So Jesus if anybody has a reason to be in charge of something or to, to want attention or what, to get his way, it's Jesus. Jesus is Lord of absolutely everything. But the other side of that paradox is that Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself in obedience to God to serve others and to change the world. So the paradox is that Jesus is Lord of absolutely everything, but he expressed that lordship. He lived that out by serving one author says that Jesus is a Lord who made himself a slave. Another says his lordship was expressed in his servanthood, in his willingness to serve. You may remember from that sermon a few weeks ago, we used the example of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, it says that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. In verse three, what's really interesting in that, in that chapter, among other things, is that it says that Jesus knew that all authority had been given to him. 
He knew that all authority had been given to him. So what did he do with it? So he put on a towel and washed his disciples' feet. He was their Lord and he made himself their servant. I have to tell you that nobody but Jesus uses power in that way. I mean, who else, who else is given that kind of power and the, the main thing they can think to do with it is to serve other people with it. He knew that all authority had been given to him, so he put on a towel and washed their feet. As their Lord, Jesus used his authority, he used his advantages, he used his privileges to serve and to build up everyone who was under his authority or under his influence. So Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of following his example as a way of worshiping, as as a way of responding to him. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Out of a desire to reflect who Jesus is into the world around us. And that's why we submit, why we cooperate, why we make sacrifices for the good of others. So our submission that Paul calls for flows out of strength. Just like Jesus' submission His willingness to serve flowed out of his strength. It flows out of the power of God that's at work within us because I just said that nobody but Jesus uses power that way. And so when you and I have an advantage over someone, that's not our first impulse, is to serve them with it. It's to run up the score, right? It's to get further ahead. It's to build, it's to increase our advantage. That's our natural impulse. But by the power of God at work within us, you and I can manage to follow the example of Jesus and to submit or to serve out of strength. Martin Luther once said, a Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to no one. But a Christian is also the most dutiful servant to all and subject to everyone. So the same paradox that we saw in the life of Jesus should be reflected in our lives as well. A Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to no one but a Christian is also the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. So in this passage that we're looking at today from the end of chapter five and in the early part of chapter six, Paul is referring to the social order of of the time, the way the extended family households were ordered in his time. Most adults in Paul's day were married. Uh, Husbands were usually the head of their households and, and husbands usually had authority over their wives. Parents had authority over their children. Masters had authority over their slaves. And what stands out to me as I, re, as I look through this text, there, there are two emphases that stand out to me in what Paul has written here. Two emphases for each position that he names. And the first one, <clears throat> the first emphasis, no matter who he's talking to, is to be outstanding in whatever role you're in. To be outstanding in whatever role you fill. So to husbands, he says, be an outstanding husband. To wives, he says, be an outstanding wife. To parents, he says, be outstanding. Children, masters, slaves, for us that would be employers, employees. Be outstanding in the roles that you're in. Because your goal is to reflect Jesus wherever you find yourself, whether you're in your household, whether you're at work, at school, in your neighborhood, living out the things that we've been talking about in the context, the background in Ephesians four and five, what it looks like to be alive in Christ should just be flowing out of our lives no matter where we are and who we're with. People should, we should be outstanding as people who are kind, who are tender-hearted, who are gracious, 
who are not given to coarse language and so on and so on. All of those, all of those commands that we find in chapters four and chapter five. So the first thing I see here is an emphasis to be outstanding. The second one is to use whatever advantage you, advantages you have over other people, whatever authority, authority you have to serve them. Whatever authority you have to serve them, to build them up. Whoever's under you, who's ever under your influence, under your authority, use the advantages, the authority, the power, whatever it is that you have, use those things to build them up. The clear focus here in this, in this section is on the people who hold power, the people who have more authority or more power in these relationships. It's a radical demanding call to husbands, especially to um, parents, to masters, it, it was unheard of in Paul's day to, it was revolutionary to, to appeal to, to call people in power, someone with, who was socially superior, to respect and serve their social inferiors. Paul's call in this passage is, is turning the world upside down for the people that it's written to. Paul says elsewhere, remember the way that God came to us in Jesus Yes, he was purposeful. Yes, he took initiative, but he did it in humility. He did it in weakness, and he did it in vulnerability. So even though Jesus was God in flesh, he did not overwhelm or dominate people. He came as an ordinary man who was easily overlooked. I just never forget where it says in the Gospels, when the people of Nazareth Nazareth realized that he was starting this public ministry, it says that they looked at each other and said, who is, who is this guy I think he is? We know this is just Joseph's son. He's lived here for 30 years. Who, is, who does he think he is? And to me, what I, what I hear in that is just a, <clears throat> a clear declaration <clears throat> of how ordinary looking, how, ordinarily, how ordinary Jesus was, how easily he was to over, be overlooked. I mean, we think of him as a glorious figure, which, which became clear as, as time went on. And yet there were ways in which he was hidden. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God's foolishness, Here he's referring to uh, how he came in in humility and weakness. God's foolishness in approaching us this way is wiser than human wisdom. And God's God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So that's why I say that here, Paul's challenge is for you and for me to use whatever authority or advantage we have to help people under our influence to flourish like Jesus did. His goal was to help the people under his care to flourish to even be willing to make sacrifices to see them flourish. So for example, in verse 25, Paul says, husbands, love your wives. But this isn't just some random commandment he's pulled out of thin air, something he just wants to make us do. He says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives in the way that Christ loved the church. And he did this, Jesus loved the church in this way, in order to make us holy, cleansing us by the washing of water through the word, <clears throat> to present us to himself <clears throat> as a radiant church. Excuse me. <clears throat> Thank you. Is this going to be some kind of tea that's going to make me cough harder? <laughs> Thank you. So I was in the middle of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, husbands, your primary goal is to see your wife flourishing. 
your primary goal, the, ad- the advantages that you're given in your relationship is to see your wife flourishing. And to some extent, that's true for wives too. Your primary goal is to see your husband flourishing. Parents, your goal is to see your children flourishing. Here it's masters and slaves. In our context, it would probably be supervisor, employer. Your goal is to see your staff, your employees flourishing. So I think these are two helpful emphases to keep in mind from this passage. Be outstanding in whatever role you find yourself, whatever advantages that you find you have, use them to serve the people under your authority. There are two ways I want to highlight that I think this passage is sometimes misunderstood. And the first one is one that I, th- well, the first one is simply that husbands should dominate their wives and that wives should welcome that kind of domination. Obviously, I'm caricaturing that a little bit. But given the context that I've presented to you in Ephesians 4 and chapter 5, that, that picture should sound nonsensical to you as a way of living out, as, as a living out of the Jesus way. In the context of what I just described to you, that, that should sound nonsensical. In fact, after all, Paul says in verse 32 in this passage that our marriages are meant to be a living parable of the relationship Christ has with his church. He says, your, um, your, relation, your marriage relationships are meant to be a living parallel of how Christ and the church love and care for each other. Is a domineering husband and a cowering doormat wife a true picture of the relationship that Christ has with his church? I think not. Of course not. Verse 24 says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he says, this is a profound mystery in verse 32, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. It might be helpful to think about how, how it is that the church submits to Christ. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as Christ submits to the church, or as the church submits to Christ. Well, how does that work? What does it look like? Well, Jesus moves toward us in loving, self-giving, sacrificial servanthood. He makes huge sacrifices for our good, for our benefit. He then remains with us at all times to encourage us, to empower us, to care for us, to strengthen us. Jesus does not use his power to control nor to demand. He uses it to invite and to serve. And how do we respond to that? We gratefully respond to that with humility, right? With gratitude and with humility, we respond to that kind of, that kind of loving servanthood. And husbands, I'm one of you. I, I don't think any of us can honestly say that that's how we consistently love our wives. I hope it's at least some or a lot of how you love your wife, that you're moving toward her in loving, self-giving, self-sacrificing servanthood, making even huge sacrifices if necessary for her good, for her benefit, remaining faithfully present to her, to encourage her, to strengthen her, to empower her and to care for her, inviting and serving rather than demanding or controlling. Because that's the, the first step in this dance, And the second step of submitting to a husband is designed as a response to that kind of loving care. And I can tell you that I'm confident that the more you are able to love and serve your wife in this way, 
the easier it will be for her to cooperate with you, to respect you, and even to submit to you. Well, wives, I'm sure that you know that your husband is never going to do this perfectly. Um, but your respect for him will make it much easier for him to love you in this way. In most cases, your loving him in the way that we've described here will increase his desire to love you in that way, his eagerness to love you in this way. Pastor Jeff Streit tells a, a story, a, a, tells about a study conducted at Syracuse University several years ago where researchers asked a large number of husbands and wives, what do you want from your marriage? What do you want from your marriage? The number one response from the men was respect from our wives. Respect from our wives. They said that when it's clear that their wives respect them, they feel capable. They feel like their wives are proud of them and that's the most important thing to them. The number one response from the women, among the women, was affection from our husbands. They said that they wished their husbands would treat them like they did when they were dating. I think it's very interesting that Paul said all those centuries ago in verse 33, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and wives must respect their husbands. Use exactly those two words. It sounds like maybe this has been a a challenge for a long time for husbands and wives for husbands to love their wives as Christ has loved the church and for women to respect their husbands in response. I read a story this week about a a husband named Ted. Someone asked him, he was celebrating, he and his wife were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, he and his wife Susan, and someone asked him, what's the secret to your successful, your and your wife's successful marriage? And he said, the secret to our successful marriage is this watch, this watch that was a gift from my father-in-law, a wedding gift from my father-in-law. Turns out that Ted grew up in a group care home. He didn't grow up in a household as part of a family, so he didn't have a, a models for how a husband would love his wife, nor for health, how to build healthy family relationships. Ted was swept off his feet by Susan when they got to know each other, but he was afraid to ask her to marry him because he uh, didn't have the confidence that he would be able to be a good husband for her. But one day she surprised him in a conversation about them getting married and she was pursuing the conversation with him and he was smart enough not to say no. After the wedding ceremony, uh, Susan's father took him aside and handed him a small gift box and said, this is all you really need in order to have a happy marriage. And Ted was taken aback that it was so simple, but he was intrigued as well. When he opened the box, he was surprised to find that uh, what was inside was a very nice gold watch, the one that he was, was wearing. When he examined it more closely, he saw that there were several words etched across the, the glass face of the watch, and there were five words etched there. They said simply, say something nice to Susan. And he looked at it a little bit, and then he realized he smiled and looked at his father and all because he realized that every time he looked at his watch to see what time it was, it was always going to be time to say something nice to Susan. And so he smiled at his father-in-law and said, I would be happy to. <clears throat> Another way this passage is sometimes misunderstood is to read it as an endorsement of slavery or to say that the Bible endorses slavery. And I... I hope that in the context of all we've been talking about, that sounds as nonsensical to you as an expression of the way of Jesus as well. We don't have time to talk about that a lot of length this morning, but I just want to point out three, three observations that aren't original with me. 
Uh, but the first is that first century slavery uh, was not as harsh nor as destructive as the slavery we think about from the 18th century that was in place in North South America and the Caribbean. Uh, it wasn't racialized. It was, it was not usually, it was sometimes, but not usually as brutal as the slavery that was more recent to us. Also, secondly, Paul's emphasis here in this passage is not really on um, reordering the broader society. He's just giving instructions to Christians who find themselves in different locations in the social order. His focus is on the proper conduct, uh, how, to, how to represent Jesus well in whatever situation you find yourself. If you want a clearer sense of Paul's um, instruction about slavery, I would urge you to read the book of Philemon where he gives clear instructions to a Christian uh, that, that Paul was sending a, a slave, a Christian slave, back to a Christian master. And you'll see that in Philemon, he says, treat him like a dear brother in the Lord. And sort of implied as someone who's bound to you by the economic structure of our time. Slavery was a way of life for many people in this time. But Paul had clear instructions for how people, the revenantly slaves and masters in, in the churches and Paul's giving instruction how to treat each other. But read the book of Philemon if you want a little clearer window into how Paul would talk about that. So today our focus has been on relationships and on renewed relationships and what we learn about them in this passage of scripture, what it means to be um, living out our relationships as people who are alive in Christ. And I, I just want to end here by inviting you to think about what the Holy Spirit has brought to mind for you as we've talked about these things. Where has this connected to your everyday life? Remember we started with Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 where we said, follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me just invite you to reflect on those two emphases that I highlighted for you earlier be outstanding in whatever role you fill and use your advantages to serve other people. I just invite you to think for a moment as you've faced, uh, confronted, been confronted with this teaching, are you an, example, uh, an exemplary, are you an outstanding husband if you're married? Are you an outstanding wife? Are you outstanding as an employee or an employer, as a, as a, as a teacher or a student? Are you outstanding as a neighbor, as a friend? Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit wants to invite you into a new step in, in growing, in being a more outstanding person in one of these roles. Or maybe for you, the, the issue is using the advantages you have the authority that you have over another person or the influence you have with other people. How are you using the advantages you have? Have you been using those advantages to run up the score on the people, to take further advantage, to increase your advantage, or have you used your advantages to serve them? Think about your family or your workplace. Maybe for you it's being at school or maybe it's here at church. Maybe you're in a ministry area where you have some responsibility or authority. Are you using it to care for and to serve the people over whom you have authority? Is it your primary goal to see the people under, under your care flourishing? If so, 
That's wonderful. Thanks be to God. You're reflecting life in Christ into those situations. You're reflecting the attitude of Christ. You're being made new in the attitude of your heart. You're putting on the new self by reflecting Jesus in those places. But if not, if not, if the Holy Spirit's brought something to mind for you in this area, what's a specific, maybe ask the Holy Spirit, what is a specific next step you could take? to grow, to, to move in the direction of using your advantages to serve the people over whom you have authority. Lord, this is a tall order for us. It's always a tall order it's to, to be called to follow the example of Jesus. But especially when we, we're so insecure about the advantages we have, we want to hold on to them and we want to get the most benefit out of them when we have them. Lord, I ask you to give us the courage and the, uh, a sense of security in you that allows us to truly serve out of the advantages that you give us as gifts to handle well and carefully. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you make this possible for us, that you make it possible for us to live, to, to, to live out the way of Jesus even when we're just not really capable of that ourselves and in our own strength in, in any way. Holy Spirit, we invite you to transform us so that we might do this better and better in our daily lives, we pray in Jesus' name.